You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! What's going on? It's your boy, Doc Coyle, and this is the X-Men Podcast. Thank you so much for checking out the show. I am again in a hotel room in Lubbock, Texas, on a day off from the road. I'm in that uh, that part of the tour. I feel like it's like the, the bubble part of the tour, right? Where you've been on tour for so long that you start to not really know what's going on in regular life. You know, I mean, I guess it's different now that we have social media, you can kind of stay up to date, you know, find out what kind of uh, world affairs are, are, are going on. But I, I remember touring back in like the early 2000s and I just, I would just not know, like I didn't know the Red Sox were in the World Series in 2004, that they like came back and beat the Yankees. I don't know about any of that stuff. You just, you you know, and, and now, so I've been out, basically the tour started April 20th and since then, and now we're about to start August and I've had two weeks off since then so uh it's been on the road a lot um and so it's it's definitely all encompassing you know and it's kind of interesting when you get some uh you know last episode actually before i get get into this i want to apologize i had uh i think 12 days between uh my last episode and the previous one so my apologies i just things got a little hectic and i could not get uh an episode out each week, and I, I try and have at least one a week. So my apologies to all X Men fans who were disappointed there was not an episode. But you know, I'm doing my best out here, and uh, sometimes it's hard. It's hard to get the uh, the quiet space. So I actually, I got my own hotel room. That's right, guys. I'm investing for the show. Uh, <laughs> I got my own room just so I could have some some quiet. Because sometimes, you know, we'll have like a band room. Sometimes people will be in there. Sometimes they won't be in there. I'll get some work done. And then, you know, then they just hang out, you know. And, they'll, you know, and I can't really feel bad. Like, hey, guys, you leave so I could do uh, podcast work. So every now and again, I guess I have to spend a couple ducats to get some of these episodes done. So anyway... Again, my apologies, and I'm going to be working on stuff. I've got some ideas for some guests coming up. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, like feel, I feel in, in, in the bubble a little bit, but in, in kind of a, a, a good kind of way, you know, where I, I haven't had music 
truly dominate my my time this much in a really long time. It's kind of, you know, I, I guess in a way maybe kind of have to reprioritize, you know, like I'm, I'm thinking about writing music more. I'm realizing, you know, I have to play more and work on that craft. It's 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 such a balance, I think, in a in a in a tough thing when you're into a lot of different things like I am. Um, and you can't, you just can't do a million things all the time. And the the truth is right now with what Battles is doing at such a high level in terms of the the bands we're playing with and kind of the the level of professionalism. I, I really want to kind of step up, step up to the plate and hopefully things like this do not uh, take a hit. But, you know, it's just, th- these are things that I've been thinking about and it's just interesting how things evolve you know you're in one place and your lifestyle changes and you have to kind of you know kind of kind of go along with the with with the punches you know uh just a a quick little story i posted something on on social media basically making a joke um about saying here's a tutorial uh for for people instead of at, sending me a message asking where we're playing here's a tutorial on on, on what to do and it's basically a picture and Googling Bad Wolves tour dates. And uh, and I said, sign for me and every other musician. and Or touring musician or band person. I forget the exact verbiage. But um, I just thought I was just being funny. Because it's basically, you don't really need to ask me. Or anyone, really. any you know If I, if I have uh, buddies who are on tour, like for example, I've been trying to catch that uh, Slayer Lamb of God tour somewhere if I have some time off and unfortunately we're literally crisscrossing the world. So I'll probably never get to catch it, but I'm not going to like text one of my friends in one of those bands because I know they're busy and I can look up the dates. I don't need them for that information. Um, And someone actually hit hit me to the, uh, I guess there's what you'll do is you actually send people to the link. um, Let me Google that for you. The, the um, acronym for, for that, you'll basically send that to be kind of snarky and sarcastic about what they should do. And then I had a couple people kind of clap back at me. Well, it must be really shitty for, you know, to have, you know, be so popular that people ask you questions about where you're playing and it's, you know, I was I was pretty disappointed in 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 that because that's not the point. The point isn't leave me alone. <laughs> um, hit me up, ask me questions. Um, you know, that's that's fine. Uh, some people said, well, maybe it's sometimes people just want to they want to interact, so that's how they want to do it. But the the truth is, you know, we should raise the bar for e- each other. You know, and how we're going to interact because the truth is attention is a finite resource for any human being um you know and there's only so many hours in the day so so many letters you can answer hands you can shake pictures you 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 can you can take um and i pride myself on on trying to be as available as possible and um I was, you know, I was personally a little bit offended by someone insinuating that that somehow I was being, um, you know, not available or being mean to people who are just interested, you know. And and I, I made a point to say, friends and family are the worst culprits of this. Of just, when are you playing? Are you coming? It's like, you know, even more than even more than fans, because that's what the fans usually know. They're the ones that are the most interested in what in what, what you're doing. So I hope hopefully. 
you know, even though a couple people did clap back with that, you know, I would like to clarify that was not the point. The first thing was just to be funny and also a lot of uh, prominent musicians also kind of um, gave me props for that because it's true. It's just like, fucking look it up. I, w- I wish there's just most things that we could probably just look look up. You know, it, it's it's insane. I think in this this time when we have the most resources to find out how to do things and what to do, um, in many ways, we have some of the people least capable of realizing that they have all these resources at their fingertips. So that you know that that was my tip of the week. Get your motherfucking Google on. You got a question? Google that shit or Bing that shit or Yahoo that shit or Ask Jeeves that shit. All right? All right, guys. I don't mean to get angry. Can't help it. Just drink an entire Monster Energy drink. I'm all, I'm all pepped up. We've got no pre-show music this week, so I'm just going to cut to the chase and give our guest an intro. Uh, this guy's name is Nelson Blake, and someone I've been trying to get on the show for a very long time. Super, super brilliant guy. Probably uh, one of the smartest guys, if not the smartest guy I've, I've had on the show. And I was, tell you guys, I was doing a lot of work just to keep up with him in, intellectually. And I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't my sharpest during during the, the, the conversation. But um, he's a comic book artist. He's uh, currently doing Spider-Man. Actually, I believe he just announced he's working with DC. So maybe, I don't know if there's like a turf war. They're fighting over him. You know, they're, they're, you know, there, there's a bidding war to, to, to get his talents, but um, he also did Luke Cage. Uh, he has a graphic novel that he helped develop through Image called Romulus. And he's also uh, the ex-guitar player for a New York City-based metalcore band called Locked in a Vacancy. And, um, you know, I'm not even going to spoil it too much. This actually, But it, I will say this. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It's not um, quite as autobiographical. Um by its structure, as many ones I do, we kind of just go with the flow. And you know what? I li- I tend to like that. I think more often than not because it's organic and it's um it was really exploratory and a lot of fun. So I think you guys are really gonna enjoy this. Please check out my conversation with the one and only Mr. Nelson Blake. Right, so we're in Manhattan, in the in in the the largest house I've ever seen in <laughs> in New York. Um, it's pretty it's pretty crazy. But we're not gonna t- get too deep in that because you know I can't be divulging. This is like like the bunker, undisclosed location. Yeah, it's like when when, it, when 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 shit goes down, you know, this is this is pretty much where I want to be. But um, so we have Mr. Nelson Blake here. I've been meaning to get you on the show for a while, but I like doing it in person. Absolutely. This is I'm very happy that we got to do this in person. Yes, yes. Well, it's um it's interesting our the history of our relationship um because, you know, I know you from back in the day playing yeah. uh playing the band, playing guitar for a band called Locked in in a Vacancy. Um New York City hardcore metalcore, <laughs> I guess which what you what you would call it. And then we kind of like I I would say it fell out of touch, but I think just the same way where you you're people within a scene and you hang out with each other, but then people kind of move on, they do yeah. other things, and then we kind of reconnected through social media, Absolutely. and kind of as I as I say the uh, the mutual admiration society. Yeah. 
I think that 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 exists on 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 those platforms where you know I I you can kind of see how certain people's intellect yes cuts through for sure in in a way like it exposes a lot of people yeah <laughs> when it, when it doesn't cut through <laughs> well just it's interesting because it's like this almost willful um presentation of what's going on in people's minds yeah they're actually willfully letting you know what's going on in their mind absolutely to, you know to i guess whatever degree of manipulation or what people want to show but anyway so we would start kind of going back and forth and talking about things i was like this guy's this guy's really smart <laughs> <laughs> which is interesting when it's someone that you had a certain kind of relationship with and then you see a level of that person that you weren't able to get exposed to yeah and what i find is uh not to make this a downer too early, but part of the reason our show yesterday was special was because uh, Rick, our former drummer, passed away. Passed away. So he's talking about, by the way, the uh, uh, Locks and Vacancy opened up the Bad Wolf Bad stops Wolf. in yes. New York City yesterday. And yesterday was Rick's birthday. And you know, the thing about when Rick passed that really struck me, and I'm not an overly emotional person, is we had a, being in a musical environment with someone is a very intimate, particular kind of relationship. Yeah. You know, that's kind of different. So. When you know other musicians and you meet on that kind of level, at that age, I thought that was probably 19, 20 when I met you. Yeah. I'm almost 40 now. Me too. <laughs> I'm, I'm knocking on 40. <laughs> you know? So at the time, I didn't understand that aspect of it. So seeing, so Doc to me was this guitar player and we had these influences in common and we talked about Street Fighter and comic books, which was already a you know, an amalgamation of interest that was kind of unique. There's a plenty of geeks in the hardcore metal scene, mm. but we were kind of hitting on the same exact names like Joe Moderata, Jim Lee, that kind of thing. You know, talking about Arc Enemy before anybody'd heard of them. Not anybody, but they the were still underground to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, this was before Angela and everything. So then to see you write online and to see you speak, as you said, like really on an intellectual level and see kind of like your your brain patterns out there shared in the world, it was a different kind of fascination yeah. in comparison uh, with our first, you know, meetings and sharings and stuff like that. Yeah, so um, that, and I, and I guess that would, I would kind of put that as a preamble to kind of get in what, what we're gonna talk about, but um, let's kind of go go back a little bit. Um, so you were playing this band Locked in a Vacancy. Yes. And the thing that's that's really interesting to me about that is, you know, uh, the singer, Diami, mm -hmm. uh, really kind of, you know, a central figure yeah. in in the local uh, New York hardcore scene going back. Like, there was never a show, uh, you know, and when we use the word hardcore, I mean, we, we could be talking about grindcore, yeah, we mean death everything. metal, yeah. uh, just underground music in a, that particular, you know, you know, whether it was CBGBs or there was right. Lamore. For, for he, people who weren't around at that time or not familiar with the area or not old like us, <laughs> <laughs> When we say hardcore, that encompasses, basically, if you didn't listen to rap music, you were at one of these shows. Yeah. It might be a show that was practically so hardcore, old school, that it was almost a punk show. And it might be a, so, a show that was so far to the other side that it was practically a straight up death metal show. Yeah. You know, you'd both be playing at Castle Heights at some point. You know, Brother, I just realized, why, why haven't I gotten Yami on the show? <laughs> yeah, right. Because right? Yami never speaks. He's, oh, listen, <laughs> he's he the quietest, super social guy I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> when he speaks he screams yeah exactly exactly <laughs> he's like black bolt <laughs> but um but 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 no but he was always a guy um involved from the you know really uh embracing diy yeah lifestyle 
he was the one setting up shows, yep. handing out flyers, uh, being engaged, and then obviously being in a in a band. Uh, always you know there you guys are open for this show. You were doing this. You were you know we we were playing together. Um, you know, so when did you start playing with that band and, and how long did that last? Uh, I think I played with the band for at least two years. It's all kind of a blur. From when to when? Uh, from, I think, around 99 to 01, okay. around that time. I actually was friends with the band. So one of my absolute best friends in the world, uh, Isaac Elias Jr., he was the bass player for that band at the time. His brother, Izzy, is one of the guitar players right now. So we're all kind of close-knit family. I was hanging out with the guys for a while. Actually, when I met them, I didn't, I'd hardly ever touched a guitar before, <laughs> right? So I, was, I, I started playing guitar roughly 17, 18 is when I started playing it seriously. And I joined the band when That's I was pretty roughly, late. Very late, very late, roughly 18, 19. So I didn't, like when you saw me play, I think the first time was might've been Castle Heights or something like that. Those were the only songs in the world I knew how to play. <laughs> I, I did not know any music theory. All I knew was the Dimebag school of, you know, Legato and the James Hetfield school of right hand, okay. you know, attack. That'll get you pretty far. It did. If you do it well, of <laughs> if course. If you do it well. And, well, it was one of the best things in the world for me at the time because I was such an insecure player that I was a special breed of like perfectionist yeah. because I didn't want my lack of ability. You don't want to be exposed. I didn't want to be exposed. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and honestly... I didn't want to be, I don't want to do that to my bandmates, yeah. you know, which is more important. Uh, Cause honestly, I got over stage fright after my first show. You know, my first show was at Lemoore. So it was up on a stage, which if you never played a live show before is, you know, kind of horrible. And my string broke during a part that was kind of a solo-ish part. Of course. Right. And there was, you know, a couple of hundred people there. So I'm like, well, I'm never going to be more absolutely terrified than I am right now. Every show after this, I'm better equipped to handle adversity of any kind. And so after that, like, I didn't think so much about myself when I played as it was, I want us to sound good, you know? And actually, yeah. and this is not to butter you up, but watching you guys at Castle Heights, because everything was so hardcore punk influence, and I was a metalhead, like straight up metalhead, Castlevania music, that was my <laughs> influences. And uh, you guys were so clean and so tight playing those line sixes at the time uh, that, I was like, okay, how do we get to be more like that? You know, the, yeah. because we had hardcore influences, noise core, metalcore influences at the time, and also straight metal influences. And Hector was, a, he was a guy who, yeah, he'd heard of that stuff. My other guitar player, Hector, he'd heard of that stuff at that time, but he was just starting to really get into it when I joined the band. And so we kind of started to converge, you know, pun intended, mm -hmm. reference intended. Uh, we started to converge on those kind of harmonies and really tight playing and tight sounds. And uh, yeah, so that was all happening around that time. And seeing you guys was the first time I was like, see, see, that's what you want to do now. Stop bothering me. Well, for <laughs> us, it was, we saw the bands that we wanted to emulate, not necessarily sound like, yeah. but just the level of professionalism of a band like Candiria. 100%. Of a band like Dillinger Escape Plan. Yeah. Um, and those bands were doing something a bit different than, than we were, but to us, that was the kind of gold standard for the, the local area. Even right. a, band, even a band like E Town Concrete uh, was very professional the yeah. way they they carried themselves the way they they, they performed and we were like we, we want to be as 
good as 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 those bands. Right. And I don't know if your situation was like mine, but part of it was we were poor kids who didn't know anything about equipment. Yeah. So part of that, because when I say you know that, it, it, again, you and I have common influences. So there's gonna be. I mean, part of the reason we get along is because we like some of the same stuff, like anybody, right? But it wasn't. I'd never asked the guys to be more like God forbid in sound. I'm like. In terms of like the music, I'm like, what are they using? <laughs> like, why, why when you play a chord is there extra noise, and when they go quiet, it's completely silent. Well, we we went in the rabbit hole. So so back in the day, just to give everyone a little bit of context for this, uh, having good gear and good live sound was uh, it was almost like a mystery box because yeah. now everyone knows, right? Everyone goes on the internet and yeah. they see. Oh, periphery, they use this and they tell you. And there's a whole <laughs> culture around gear now. And back in the day, you would like hear a band on a record and then you'd show up and see them live and you'd see their rig. You're like, oh, right. what are they using? Oh, I got this weird pedal and this thing. And, and things were just a lot more secretive on how, yeah. to, how to quote unquote sound good. And we were doing a lot of shows in places that didn't have PAs. Absolutely. You were doing shows at basement shows and hall shows. So you needed the, the, your sound to sound good, even if it wasn't mic'd up. Yep. So that was, you know, and so what we would do is just go to shows and you're constantly watching band. Oh, what are they using? Oh, you guys use, okay. You, you're taking little notes yeah. and you're, 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 you're figuring it out. The part of the reason that the line six thing worked for us was that we did a record with this guy, Steve Evitz. Mm -hmm you know, really influential producer. I had him on the show and he essentially brought our amps in, turned the gain way down, yeah. put mid range in there. And that was the sound of the record. It was right. really clean. And the idea was, well, we were the, we were influenced to get the line six amps because we went and saw Nevermore. Yes. And they used them and sounded great. And I just liked how clean, and I've gone back and listened to videos of us playing. Yeah. And the, we sound, it they, still sounds yeah, clean. It, yeah. yeah. It sounded, but it was, we had to play good and we wanted that sound to emulate the sound on the the record right and it did it very well and you know i don't know if it was like this on your end because of the nature of how you guys got together but for us because we had people coming from different influences there was a philosophical like you know i won't call it a civil war it's a little dramatic but kind of a philosophical debate about whether you should actually sound clean is that rock and roll is hmm. that punk yeah. You know, and for me, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> you play the music so they can hear it. And for um, different people at different times, some not even in the band, but just this was just a conversation around a lot of people in the scene at that time because the scenes were kind of smashed up against each other. Some people didn't even want to tune their guitars. Mm -hmm. Some people, yeah, and you talk about today versus back Tuning then. Tuning is not punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You're selling out being all in tune. <laughs> Guitar strings, <laughs> new. Now, a quote-unquote budget amplifier sounds a million times better than the infamous like little crate that just sounded oh. like nonsense. What was so there was the blue voodoo, but then there was like the shitty was the Excalibur. Is that what it was? I don't called? remember what it was, but was there's a, a crate and a PV that were like both. Good lord! But you could get that head, I think, for like two hundred dollars. It was so cheap. <laughs> but when you saw the crate amp and then the crate cabinet together yeah. you knew it was gonna be a rough one no one you know and that was i feel like every every other hardcore band had a had a crate yeah. but the band i would say the the guitar player dan from for the love of had this crate yeah. and it always sounded sick isn't that crazy uh I, there's a few bands that had that kind of thing like shy halud was playing through i think jcm 900s and they made it sound so different than everyone else's and i'm just like what what are you well, doing here's the thing about the 900s 
is not quite the same as the the eight hundreds, which had a little more crunch to them. Yeah. But the nine hundred, it just you had to add something to it. Yeah. But the bass was great. Right. Like it was just right. real solid. That beautiful Marshall mid range. But if you put uh, an overdrive, right. If you put an EQ, you could get it to sound saturated a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah, you. I mean, you could do a lot of really, really great things with it. But if you just plugged it right in, it sounded a little weak. Unless you're right. doing some, uh, you know, some ACDC chords or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But for the heavier stuff, you it didn't really come out of the box with the gain and the mm-hmm. compression that you kind of what we know as kind of the modern gain. And anyway, the modern amps. But I'm like, well, let's not get too down the uh, yeah. We, the gear we rabbit you hole. know we could do that to you guys for six hours straight, and we will not. <laughs> um, but 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 no. I mean, the thing about locked in vacancy two, and this was kind of emblematic and uh, distinct about when we started playing outside of Jersey and going to play in New York, was that the new New York hardcore and metal scene, not yeah. just not just the hardcore scene, was very black and brown. Yeah, absolutely. And that absolutely. was kind of mind blowing. Yeah. You know, and I th- I think the interesting thing, you go around the country, you go around the world, and those communities are white as white as yeah. white, right? <laughs> uh, but that was not the case. And so I, I, I wonder if um like did you guys ever deal with that? Oh, you guys are the other black band? Oh, a hundred percent. In fact, I, I think one of the reasons uh you guys' names came up so much was there was two basic reasons one metalcore didn't exist back then well it did it i just... mean like as a as a you know as a established yeah. genre name like i didn't hear the word metalcore until after 2000 right and me personally um so so even though metal and hardcore were mixing all the time there wasn't like an established pattern of successful bands it yeah was, for it was mostly a bunch of you know broke kids having a good time <laughs> for the most part at that time so we were very metal influenced by the time our actual record had come out and the stuff that we were touring and playing with. And you guys were also obviously very metal influenced. The other part of it was you guys had black and brown people in your band and we had black and brown people in our band. And, you know, Corey looks like Niami's character model. If you <laughs> you choose the tank, <laughs> you get Corey and you choose the, you know, the DPS character, you get Niami. And so and Isaac was, you know, brown. He's Dominican. So he's brown and stuff like that. Uh, I'm black Panamanian, so, you know, again, black, brown kind of thing. And, and so people weren't seeing it that many people at that time. There were a couple other people out there, obviously Carly Coma and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But well, even look at Irate, they were all Irate, all some, Latino, right? Yeah, well, and Italian, I don't yeah, know. Who yeah. knows? Sometimes yeah, you, just, you just see them over, like, you're something. <laughs> they're, 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 uh, they're from the Bronx. I don't know Bronx. what you are. You ain't. <laughs> they're, they're Bronx. <laughs> you almost white, but not really. You don't really, I don't think you count. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, it seemed in a way almost every band was fairly diverse Absolutely. and, and it, 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 like i said very emblematic of, of what was going on in that scene and and it was great i, f- I felt really lucky yeah. because um i don't think you know you know this i guess maybe i can use this kind of pivot to something else i wanted to talk about which is this idea of of what is being black like right. by by virtue of hey this is black music yeah. This is you are talking white. You uh, are doing. You, you want to unpack that, Doc? I think it's well. Well, because I can unpack that for you. Well, I think. Listen, <laughs> I, I it, it's it's a subject matter that I think about a lot. I've written about yeah qu- quite a bit. And it's also a big source of frustration right. for my life of 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 saying you know it's like I remember who was it um oh what's the rap, the rapper's name why am I forgetting his name uh oh 
anyway, rapper who was on um, Twitter going out with uh, Ronnie Radke, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was like, and they were just have they were like beefing, just like talking yeah. shit. And he's like, well, he's like you, he's like my my music's too black for you, right? You know, and it just kind of pissed me off because, it, or you know, or even I was watching that show. Um, what is it? Uh, uh, white people. What's it called? The, the white people. Uh, dear white. People. Dear white people. Yeah. Dear, dear white people. See, the brain is not working. Today, guys. <laughs> they had a little too much to drink last night, and it was controversial that uh-huh. the black girl on the show, I think she's mixed, was dating a white guy. Right. Like this idea. Like we've kind of like gone in the opposite direction, yeah. where I think even the, the, this idea that black people would, you know, would invent jazz and blues right. and rock and roll and then white people come and take it yeah now it's kind of gone this idea where black people are like no this is this is no this is the culture you, which you is, can't and, have it that's an excellent point because if you look at what makes up okay so going to blues and jazz right so blues jazz country and classical all exist in this very strange place uh musically because the jazz people were taking cadences from classical and combining it with this really soulful, basically slave music. And from the slave music being Southern in origin, this part that didn't travel basically, uh, there or Midwestern, there was more the country kind of, you know, homogenized a bit. Oh, gospel, we could throw gospel in there Gospel too. as well. I'm, so, I'm biased towards guitar music, so yeah. I'm <laughs> keep, you know, keeping it on the strength. But <laughs> so emergent from this culture which i mean we, let's talk about it you're talking about louisiana which is a mix of a lot of people right so you're going to have music is a, a bunch of exceptional people right so you can't dismiss any one person in any industry like you talk about the roots of like modern rock and roll some people would think of if you're having a racial conversation you would think well Jimi hendrix is the one black guy which we know is inaccurate but that's for some people the popular narrative. But the thing is, when you talk about something creative, every contributor counts. So you can't have a racial conversation and be accurate about most American music mm-hmm. because America in its nature had contributions from other people. Now you can talk about a dominant thing and how it reflects in that culture, right? Uh, the easy example is kind of like hip hop. People think of it as a black thing, but as a product of a black and Latino relationship in the 70s, I can tell you that there were a lot of Latino people there who were huge into that. Uh, and then even then, the producers were Jewish, right? And yeah. for a lot of those guys. Hey, Rick Rubin, who's who's more influential in hip hop? Super influential, right? So it's, it's one of those things, Doc, where it's such an anti-intellectual tribal simplification mm-hmm. to try to claim the abstract language of music, which as humans, we all share. And that's the irony of it. Music is a language that bridges us all together, regardless of how much we know about each other. Mm. And to try and distill that into something that pushes us away from each other doesn't make sense on a fundamental level. It's like trying to assign race to food types. You know what I mean? But is is that a deficiency? By the way, the rapper was Vince Staples. That's oh, what okay. came to mind. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Anyway. But does that um, kind of like this idea of, for example, the even the phrase cultural appropriation, yeah. which I don't think was really a phrase 20, right. <laughs> 20 years ago, we've kind of moved to this other other realm where is that a source of that? I think it's kind of a de-evolution yeah. Oh, yeah. Of, of, of the black culture saying, no, no, this is these are the parameters of what counts as 
uh, legitimate blackness. Well, and once you go out of this, so if you, you know, and, and that's like this this dialogue yeah. of, well, basketball is black. Right. And hip hop is black. And all right, if I speak in this way and I enunciate my words this way, you know, this this is what counts as blackness, yeah. you know. So um, here, here's a controversial idea. So the first thing we addressed was specifically music, right? Because in America, music is mixed by its nature. So even though one group may have dominated it, you can't dismiss the contributions of other groups. But that's just about music. Let's talk about this concept of blackness. Mm -hmm. Controversial thought, Doc, and I'd like your feedback on this. Black is a nonsense term that doesn't have a definition that you can 100% pin down. Well, of course. Well, but I think often what is dominated by that is is American blackness specifically. Right. Because even because the, the truth is American blackness and the imagery and the marketing and everything that comes along with that is what has been essentially sold globally. Right. So yeah. if you go to Africa and they're dressing and influenced by black by black culture from America more so then that you know what i'm saying like, oh, like, yeah, like for sure. you know and you could say that that is a, a a blend of like oh in the 70s that's when america in, in the late 60s they embraced african right names and african uh culture more and then now we're kind of regurgitating the same thing that we brought it's like this kind of but there's something very distinct about the idea of american blackness you know yeah from the way you dress the way you walk the type of movies there's a there's a whole thing around it and i i would say my issue with it is that it it creates anything to me that makes it difficult to be free absolutely and be d decide to make choices and have a community that says no no that's not cool and uh, right. like did you have that experience when you started getting into metal or started getting into well nerd the, the, shit or i would say the thing that i the experience that i had that was tied to my skin color was I could feel the magnetism of negative stereotypes every time I broke one. Yeah. So I would be, so I worked, I initially worked at the stock market and I, we might get into this later, but I work currently in entertainment. I draw comics and that kind of thing. So when you're in a room full of white people who haven't met a lot of black people, who a lot of their information about black people comes from television, passersby, the news and that kind of thing. And there's some aspect of you that doesn't fit with the definitions that they've had. There's this kind of shell shock moment. And back in the 90s and the early aughts, people weren't afraid to say, I didn't know a black guy X. Yeah. I didn't know a black guy could Y. I didn't know a black guy would be interested in so forth. And metal was a part of it. Uh, but you know, the, the shock of metal, they think about Jimi Hendrix, they think about black people playing music, and then they can reconcile it. But when I talk about my interest in, say, Aristotle or, you know, how platonic principles relate to art and music, uh, that didn't fit the narrative. That didn't fit any narrative. You know, it just didn't make sense. And they just keep asking questions. And this is I'm not saying these people were racist. The bottom line is uh, our entire history of all humanity has had some hiccups, yeah. right? <laughs> We've had our ups and downs, you know? Uh, so we have to leave room to evolve. And going to what you're saying, by defining each other with nonsense terms, right? And I'm not saying that what could be defined as black cultures doesn't exist, but that is a functional use of a term 
not an accurate use of a term. Mm -hmm. By using these inaccurate terms to define ourselves, what we can do, what we can't do, and say, you can share this, you can have this shared with you, otherwise you lose this definition, right? So you are no longer truly white if you date this person or listen to that music or dress that way. You're no longer truly black if you do these things. This cuts off the very tradition of civilization that has allowed us to grow. Yeah. You know, we can't demand growth at our personal pace. You have to allow growth however you can take it. Right. So one thing people struggle with is this person's a racist. Why do you talk to them? Because they're a racist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's only because you get it. Right. And that well, I always I always say this, you know, and I I try and talk about this on, on Twitter when, when I can is is that, you know, no one that the whole punch a Nazi meme. I'm like, yeah. no one ever decided not to be a Nazi because they got punched. Right. That only right. makes them double down on you know, to feel more validated in yeah. their in their position. And that I was like, no, you don't punch a racist, you educate them. You know, and that's the only way to make someone is is that the way they, because it that person doesn't actually br look at how that person got there. Yeah. You don't say, well, why do they become racist? Like, usually, generally, let's say people aren't born racist. That's not totally true. Kids, they've done studies that kids kind of tend to favor uh, in-group you know, based on, on on things like race, but there's a lot of uh, biological and, yeah. uh, and you know evolutionary reasons why that is. Doesn't mean, mean just kids are dicks, but kids are kind of dicks. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, but no, it's um, you know, I I w when you actually get to how to solve the problem, because mm -hmm. the problem is people want to be right Absolutely. more than they want to solve. They want to feel right. <laughs> well, yeah, they want to feel that they're racist. I'm not racist, so right. I'm better than them. And that hierarchy makes them feel good to kind of be right. and i guess that is the kind of the the the, the principle defining characteristic of what a, a quote unquote social justice warrior yeah. is as someone is having a superiority because you're in the right. you know you're in the right side of history and here's morally. my problem with it doc to go so i'm gonna kill two birds with one stone let's talk about cultural appropriate cultural appropriation and, and punching nazis yeah i would like to culturally appropriate the socratic method here and say my solution instead of punch a nazi Give this guy a microphone and ask him critical questions in an open forum until the stupidity is laid bare before every rational person with ears. Yeah, that solves it. Yes, there. And and you know what? It'll also. So you're do. not. You wouldn't be opposed to Richard Spencer going on Bill Maher. I would love it. I, I yeah. would rather Bill. Uh, he went on C-SPAN. Yeah. Because C-SPAN is dry and boring. Bill Maher is entertainment. Yeah. You know, as much as he tries to do. I want well, Richard. Look what happened to Milo. He like you know basically stepped on a you know rake. Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you, know he, 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 you know, I was fascinated by it, yeah. but it was it was interesting to to see when you had I think it was um uh Larry Wilmore. Yeah. Just completely oh, yeah. He just straight eviscerated. Yeah, it was, because, it was ugly. Because yeah. he's not used to actually going into a, a forum that right. where he doesn't have all the power and to delineate between uh milo and richard spencer which is not to defend either one of them but milo is an opportunistic troll yeah. who he's a shock jock he's a shock jock right and any shock jock is part performance i can't speak for how much part is performance but richard spencer is a zealot so i want him to filibuster congress trying to get an ethnic ethno state happening yeah. for white people and well, i want that out in, yeah, in a want, transcript <laughs> we want his his uh the fit 
his honesty to actually yeah, be out there because no stone unturned. The, the way someone like that is successful is by creating a subterfuge yes. that hides the actual true nature and their motivations and what, right. they, what, what they really want. He's, you know, that whole rebranding of the alt-right was that, oh, we're going to put on suits and we're yeah. going to, we're going to get good jobs and we're going to kind of, you know, um, infiltrate the system yeah. in a, in a, in a different kind of way. But, um, j just to kind of talk about the, the, the culture appropriation thing. Have you seen that movie Dope? Yes. All right. Did you? So, and there's a, and, and anyone hasn't seen this movie. It's a great movie. I, yeah, I, I, like I love it. it. And there's, you know, it's this whole idea about essentially black nerds in yeah. Compton. Yeah. They're in Compton, right? I think, I think yeah, somewhere, yeah. somewhere in, in South Central. <laughs> um, and, you know, and there's this whole section about how they're into white shit, quote uh -huh. unquote. And that because of that, they face derision within yeah. a more, urbanized idea of like what we said before about what what blackness is and what is okay are we moving i mean i feel like we're moving forward with that but it kind of bothers me that we even have to kind of have a movie like that that says well this is okay to do this and do that or like in 10 years are we going to have moved past a lot of that stuff well right now i think we have both yeah and what happens is online uh you we could we're talking a lot about social media conversation and what happens in news and entertainment and stuff like that and people are drawn to the thing that's going to give them the quickest emotional release Yeah. in those scenarios. And it's kind of like the difference between people talking about music. Like maybe you've experienced this, right? And as this isn't diversion. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to it. But you, you talk with a bunch of guitar players about bands they like, don't like, guitar players they like, don't like. And it turns into this kind of nerdy, you know, tribal, especially younger, you know, guitar players back and forth. And then you guys all go to like an inflamed show or something and everybody's just bobbing side to side the pinball map full of glee because the real life experience is at odds with quite frankly the low self-esteem state that a lot of people exist in when they go online mm -hmm. and for me i say never lose sight of that and going back to what one of the things of the reasons i loved talking to you after our kind of musical association was I don't, I mean, coming from where I come from, I didn't know a lot of people that I could call friends that were successful. So mm -hmm. I cherish that, hold on to it. But more important than successful people are people who are successful in a way that is contributing to the people who encounter them. And for me, I never felt like you were putting something out there to poison the world. Yeah. And- Well, I'll be, I'll be honest, I, yeah. I was lucky enough for whatever reason to be someone who grew up with low self-esteem. Yeah who essentially earned my way <laughs> out of that and, right. and saw the things that I did to compensate for low self-esteem. And then I was like, oh, I need to fill that. I need to kind of, I need to fill that up. And so be because of that, no matter, I can kind of deal with a lot of crap. Yeah. Like for example, I can go and like read people talking shit about me online yeah. or leaving back. And I think it's funny right. and I, because I don't, because I have enough self-esteem that I'm not, bothered by it like it's right. not going to take me down a peg like i have enough you know good you know good stuff so i can you know and and so it's in a way i guess maybe i'm so far from that that i i guess i i guess i pity people i have, I have low, low self-esteem that's but, the answer to your question yeah because for me it's not an either or it's uh i don't believe you right as, as the great philosopher jay-z what do you say, mean you don't you don't believe the comment I don't, I don't believe you you need more people so when people are online raging about this thing that they feel is absolutely true and absolutely necessary punch a nazi blah 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 i don't believe you because when when i believe someone that means that i feel like when they say that 
they actually think that they're their best self. They're powerful. They're right. Because yeah. it's powerful to be right. I love being right. I know you love being right because I've argued basketball with you. Well, and, and it's a lot of fun. Um, well, so, listen, just because you're right doesn't mean you're going to get acknowledged. You know, <laughs> or, that, no. or that, you know, I always say I actually hate being right. Yeah. Because then you always have to deal with wrong people and you have to like convince them. That, that is the dark the side. Line. That is the dark I'm side. Sorry, of, I, I, listen, I wish I didn't know what was going to happen before it was going to happen, but I told you so. <laughs> I need like a sticker. I told you so sticker. Just slap it on people. That, that is an ugly feeling. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but when people are doing it and it's clearly out of, it's clearly it, like we have this, de, uh, this, uh, depression epidemic, we have these opiate epidemics, you know, we have kids getting Ritalin and the pharmaceutical industry, like, you know, pump, pumping out all these drugs that are supposed to fix you because you're broken. These broken people are always the ones who are coming out with the more radical aspects of these opinions. Yeah. There might be a person who's you know, well-adjusted who has something that I disagree with about the philosophical aspect of it. But the vitriol, the emotional aspect is very seldom coming from a place of strength from either side, mm -hmm. you know? And I try to do my very best to not mistake uh, weakness, evil for weakness yeah, or vice versa, uh, and not mistake cruelty for power or vice versa. Um, one of the most important things I realized was it's not how, it, how I live is gonna be based on how I feel when I die. And there's a list of things that I wanna never, ever, ever do. I don't want it, I don't wanna to have to forgive myself for this list of things. I mean, they're pretty obvious if you're a decent person. So I'm like, okay, so I've solved that thing where someone puts a gun to my head and says, do the horrible thing or you'll die. Because I'm like, no, my life isn't about me continuing to live arbitrarily till the point at which I stop. My life is about me dying knowing I did it the way I wanted to do it, mm -hmm. you know, according to my principles. And understanding that basic idea and then comparing that, juxtaposing that up against someone who is clearly full of self-turmoil, self-hate, depression, loneliness, all these kinds of things that we haven't adapted our modern world with our, you know, mythological human journey. You know what I mean? We haven't figured out what the path of growing up is. I mean, and a lot of people talk about that the problem is religion, is that people used to have a simplified version of religion that would kind of clean up their mistakes. And after the enlightenment, while the enlightenment was philosophy disseminated to the common person, so our literacy goes up and all this other stuff, it wasn't, it, there wasn't a focused effort to make that a part of your daily life. So a lot of people had their various gods taken away and replaced with nothing. Fend for yourself. And one of the I think we're still doing. I think that's even being accelerated now. That's what the tribalism is. Yeah. And the tribalism is if you look at the symptoms of, uh, you know, misapplied religion. That's what. That's how tribalism manifests. Yeah. So it's like essentially, you can be have re religiosity about anything republicanism Absolutely. or about veganism or right. about what whatever that there's that same fervor and that same kind of like you say zealotry yes um about whatever your cause yeah. what is i think yeah i, th I think we, we are be becoming people who are galvanized by a cause this is my right. cause this right. is my i'm gonna die on this this hill and like you know and um yeah it's 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 really fascinating i'm almost becoming more I don't know if ambivalent isn't isn't the right word, but yeah. I would say what what I do is I try and do the opposite of the hot take, right? Which right. is something bombastic happens, and your instinct is to like because I think especially people like me where I was the guy who would I would write an article like yeah. 
Phil Ensemble does something, I'm the guy who's like, you guys are waiting for the Doc Coy article. Let me wait. Let me let me break it. Right. So people kind of look. So what do you think? Like for example, people reach out to me about the Azalea dying thing. What do you want? And I'm and I'm of the mind. I'm like, you know what? Let me let this play out a little bit. And because so, sometimes that yeah. gut thing, you lack information. Yeah. You lack context. You don't know what's going on. And and oftentimes the 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 knee jerk reaction is not. It's actually more often than not. It's it's a little bit. Not that it's not. The instinct isn't good. It's just you don't have enough to actually really fully understand it. You know, yeah. and I think well, here's what helps me. Right. Um, let, to paint a metaphor, Twitter and, you know, Facebook and all of these various things that people are very reactionary about. It's like they're all really horny and Twitter's their porn. It's what gives them release. And I could go to their porn and try to make good porn to drag them out of it. Or I could wait till they're finished. <laughs> When they're, they've, they're relaxed. When they're relaxed a little bit, they feel Spent. like they've gotten what they need, and and we can be like, uh, you know, clean yourself up and let's have a conversation. Well, then why does you? It does it say you're leaving Twitter? It used to say that. Uh, I had to reconcile myself with social media because I was struggling with some of the same things we discussed today. Where I'm like, it's so toxic. That and I'm an opinionated person. Yeah, you know, you want to weigh in. You want to. You right and opine. so. I'm starting to feel repressed because I'm not a passive aggressive person. It's not my na in my nature to repress any aspect, which is why I try to keep my mind open, my opinions, uh, you know, as informed as possible. Either curi curious or well researched. I got to be one of the two because I want to be involved. I want to listen and I want to speak. And Twitter was, if you speak, you will ruin your entire career. Right? Oh, it became risky. Uh, well, it became yes, it became risky, but it also became emotionally risky. Because even though I would, even though again I was getting horny like everybody else, and I wanted to release, I knew that that wasn't good for me. Yeah, I'm not saying you guys can't jerk off, do what you want, but um, I knew that that wasn't you know going to solve what I wanted. You know, it would just be me going getting because I could see the pattern, because I could see the meta pattern, right? Like you know how a, a song has a basic tune that you can use to represent the entire song, maybe even the entire theme. album, a theme. That's a great word, Doc. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I can sum up a Pantera album by, you know, kind of humming a couple of their riffs. And you go, yeah, I know the feel of that whole album. And it takes you back there. Twitter has a theme, right? So I'm not looking at the individual conversations. I'm like, you guys get all right. And it's simple stuff. I'm no genius. Like, you guys get all riled up. You go back and forth. And then you get all spent. And then you get tired. And then you're bored. You tell everybody you're bored. You literally say, I'm bored. Look at my sandwich. Right. And then something else comes along and then you guys do it again. And I'm seeing you guys do it with social issues, with sports, with video games, with comics. So you just took a break. Well, what I did was I, I, I realized that I was doing Twitter on autopilot and I needed to decide what my Twitter was for. Yeah. And well, you seem to generally most of what I get from you seems like stuff related to art and your, your comic yeah. book career. So I don't view Twitter as a valid philosophical forum for civics or social issues. So, is that because it's because it's short or because it's disposable or because it's reactionary? Yes. All of that. Yeah, okay. absolutely. <laughs> yes, 100%. So, and, and the thing is, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I do stuff like this, where I'm on podcasts. I mean, yeah. and, and frankly, anybody can put your phone to your face and do a YouTube video if you want a longer form, more reasoned out opinion. Yeah. And if you don't like the responses, you can make another video. And I'm like, that's a better forum than Twitter. So I decided, okay, for me, 
Twitter is essentially a service. Because one thing I noticed is that when I'm scrolling up my Twitter feed, and which I don't do a whole lot, I don't read as much Twitter as I you know, post and I don't I'm post addicted. Much. <laughs> I, I, I'll go about 45 minutes right when I get up. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> That's because you travel a lot, man. Kawhi Leonard's <laughs> getting treated. Oh yeah. But NBA is a different story. The NBA Twitter is perfect in every presentation, right? <laughs> I have no complaints about NBA Twitter. So what I decided was uh, when I was flipping up, I noticed that the people who were positive, that gave me a break from like, I mean, now in the modern day, it'd be the last thing Trump did, but we were finding something for years before Trump was even a I'm candidate. numb. Yeah. He could literally say, um, you know, uh, Ivanka's got a great ass. You're right, right. And I'm going to, you know, like punch a baby through all. And I just would be like, oh, that's cool. That's yeah, cool. yeah, right. Like, I literally, I'm, I'm completely numb. There's completely no, numb to there's it. nothing. Yeah. And that's the goal. Yes. That's exactly what, you know, they did in like Russia, where they basically, it's like shock and awe. You don't know what's real. So people don't know. They're just like, eh, well, whatever. And they just. Which is why I said, for me, that's not the place for it. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. You know, uh, the same way your funeral is not the place for hooking up. Twitter is not the place for philosophical. I hope. I mean, have you tried the funeral? <laughs> I haven't, you know, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're, I don't know. Dare to be different. <laughs> you know.
um advocating that but yeah so i decided twitter wasn't for that so what is twitter going to be for because it is such a valuable tool professionally and more importantly i never ever want someone else's toxicity to prevent me from helping someone that it can help yeah um i totally i totally get that i'm i'm definitely it's funny i was i was talking to a friend yesterday about addictions and yeah. uh and if if any addictions I have, it, it's probably more that than any substance or drinking or food yeah. or whatever. It's more, you know, it, and, and and that's out of all of them. Like I could probably give up all of them, but Twitter's the one where I'm like, it's hard to. Well, it's to me, it's like the Matrix. Yeah. Right. Like that is the the for whoever you follow. If you get enough kind of things that interest you, that's the pulse of the world at that particular moment. And I'm not saying it's totally accurate because what like you said, people get it's like a dog chasing a bus or something like that. Right. whatever the big thing of the moment, that's where everything's going to be centrally focused on. It's always going to be, you know, we've, we've kind of, in a sense, I think what Trump has done um, has made us all live in hyperbole. Right. Right. Like right. everything is absolutely like no, very few things are actually literal. Yeah. It, it, everything is blown up. If this is, it's like, yo, if we don't stop this tax, law the country's <laughs> literally, literally going stop to blow up tomorrow right. we don't civil war yeah you know and it's just like if we don't listen we don't stop the, and the thing is like yeah i want I, and then after a while you're like well i don't know who i believe because everyone's so pumped up right about everything this if you do this i'm like well no i mean we we kind of we you it's, know it's like we were it sucked before this thing but if we didn't have it we probably wouldn't be who you know you start to realize like ah. Eh, yeah, what, what are you going to do? You well, just can't, I like, just try not, not to get worked up about anything. You don't ever discuss in an analytical way sports with someone when their team is in it because you know they're too interested in wanting their team to win to be objective. This is our politics. It permanent. depends, unless you're talking to Doc Coe about the Knicks. Right? <laughs> I'm as objective because I think they're as silly and and worthy of criticism as as anyone. Like I'm never... I I, I So I'm on this text group text with my buddy Luke, yeah. who's a Sixers fan, my buddy Benny from Gaslight Anthem, who is a Brooklyn Nets fan, and I'm a Knicks fan. Yeah. And so we go and and it's and we all have our own uh-huh. philosophy. Like Luke is the homer. Uh-huh. You know, Benny is like, you know, for his team, but reserved and kind of just knows <laughs> the deal. And and me, I just don't give a fuck. And and we're always we have this nice little little thing. But I I, I hate homerism in all its in yes. all its uh and embodiment. That's what the homerism, right? And the thing is, as a as a Knicks fan, right, they've caused us so much pain. It's hard to be a blind homer, right? And yeah, but it's great. I love I love the cynicism. I love. Oh the, yeah. You know, there there's there's something kind of nice about just knowing, like especially after Porzingis got hurt, you just you just know it's gonna be terrible. <laughs> you know, Until start, Dolan leaves, Beasley starting like oh, this is, they're, they're they're so cute. Look right. out there. Oh, they won a game at the end of the season that they should have lost. Oh, those guys are although, they're, I'll, I'll they're admit, hilarious. I still I still am a Frank Nelikina believer. I think. Uh, yeah. I think Frank. No, apparently Frank he was, was the. Uh, so by the way, we're getting a little sports talk. Uh, apparently Frank was the best pick and roll defender in the league this year. Frank is an amazing defender already. No, but think, no, think about that. The I know, best in the league. Perf- in, his, in his first year. Watch him guard the best players in the league, and they literally all... Well, like, he actually reminds me if Kawhi, when Kawhi came in the league, if he was a guard. At, dude, literally he, what I said he, on Sim Nation the, Show. The way his demeanor and the, just the way he like moves yeah. his hands and his feet, and he's pretty... 
hesitant with the but once he actually becomes aggressive yeah. and says I want to shoot yeah. and I want to take it to the hole I think he's going to be pretty Have great. you seen him? Uh, in person? No, recently. Oh, I, yeah, his workout videos and stuff, yeah. He looking like Tommy Vex up there, man. No, he Kind of Jack. Listen, man. <laughs> the dude was 19 years old. You know? I, that's what I told people. I'm like, wait, look at his shoulders. Look at his hands. That, guy, that kid's going to grow, plus, man. Plus, the thing about him is, I don't know what's up with Hornacek, but it's like he wouldn't start him. He wouldn't play him long yeah. minutes. It's like, dude, what are you saving him well, for? In all fairness to Jeff, he's not very good at his job. Oh, so you just think he was a bad coach? <laughs> yeah, he's, 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 a, he's a very mediocre coach Okay, with a very under-talented team. So in that situation, you need a coach who can kind of see the matrix and say, this is what's going to make this team good in three years. Whereas Jeff Hornacek looked like he was trying to win with that team. Can, I, can I tell you a, a semi-racist theory about, about Knicks and coaches? Please. Is that I think... <laughs> I think the Knicks can have two kinds of coaches. Either we need a black coach, <laughs> or you need like a Pat Riley, like a fuck, hey mother, I'll fuck you. You need a tough guy. Need Tom Thibodeau. You you need like a for some reason just to withstand the barrage of bullshit that yeah. takes with the job. Like Hornacek and Mike D'Antoni, they're just too like like mild mannered and right. reasonable. Like even Steve Kerr. Is too nice. Don Nelson was like that too. Yeah, you know, he's a but like Steve Kerr's yeah. just a nice guy. He yeah, gives yeah, super nice. Just the most reasonable answers and everything. He's so open. And I, I love Steve Kerr. Yeah, but he would he would have hated it. Right, he would have absolutely and he knew that hated it. But you take a guy like Fizdale, and I'm like, yo, yeah. this is what this I'm might talking work. about. Yeah, this motherfucker will headbutt you in the parking <laughs> lot. You know, keep those reporters you know, in check. Man. Like Mike Woodson is like that. Uncle that's always in a bad mood. How did they fire Mike Woodson? Like that that was such a Knicks thing to do. Well, here's what they did. They they sandbagged him, right? They yeah. gave him uh the guy from Toronto, fucking big uh loser, uh, fucking Barnyarney. Oh man, Bar that's I right? mean So they they, tra they traded a first round draft for Barnyarney. The guy's not Barn am I doing his name right? Barnyarney. 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 Right? And then they move Mello back to the three. I mean Thanks, guys. Thanks. Like sandbagged is the perfect term. Yeah. Uh, they so, that guy over. Well, no, he was just he was just the just, just the fall guy when the truth is that yeah. Mello wasn't that good. But, but it's all right. On the Twitter thing, because there's an, an important thing to say about that. So what I found is Twitter is almost like a metaphor for personal negative ego thoughts, right? They're all there. And if you engage them, they will pull you in a direction. And it's Twitter, so it's normally negative, right? What you have to do is be able to engage it completely observationally, which is a technique I use when I'm doing something creative. And I can see that my ego has brought the survival mechanism into the equation. Oh, I really want this picture to turn out good. I really want this guitar riff to turn out this way. It's like, no, no, no. You're not listening to the music. You're not looking at the composition on the page and seeing the picture with your imagination. So, so, so then the easy shift out of that is to say, I recognize that I want those things. I'm not going to engage that. Cool, that's what you, that is an aspect of what you're feeling. That's perfectly okay, you're a human being. Now put it to the side and get to work and do a good job. Uh, be clear. And it's the same thing with Twitter. It's like, I recognize that you guys are all hyped up about this. I recognize you're all excited about this. I recognize this person's depressed. This person's in a whimsical mood. This person's trying to sell something. I get it. That's an aspect of the human experience, but I'm not gonna let that fool me. Again, we don't believe you, you need more people about actual human beings because very, very few people, especially the negative ones, 
are genuine when they're on Twitter. Mm -hmm. it, as you said, because it's an addiction, it becomes more about what's going to get me a dopamine release than it is about let's be honest and true here. Well, you know what's kind of interesting with me is I'll... So after the election, I started, I realized I was like, oh, I'm in the bubble too. Yeah. So I was like, I need to expand my, so I started following right-wing people who I do not like. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and some of them like, oh, you know what, this guy says some good things and I don't agree yeah. with everything, but, and some people I, who I absolutely despise, but the reason why I did it was so that I would get just some, I would know, I wouldn't be confused yeah. when some, when I'm like, how do these people think this? I'm like, oh, I, I know exactly. I do the same, but I, I, and I actually do follow some, a lot of people I don't agree with. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't agree with them. But I, I, I follow, follow some people that outwardly bother me. Yeah, like for sure. I do that on YouTube. So, but what I'll do is, so I'll go and I'll comment on stuff. Yeah. And then their followers will they comment. Come back, and yeah. But you wouldn't believe how many people, when you engage them and you say, hey, dude, I'm not, I'm not your enemy. Yeah. This is why, hey, what do you, why don't you, hey, man, help me, help me understand. Yeah. And when you, and they'll like, they'll start following me. And, I think, like, and they'll, and they'll be like, you know what, yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm like, yeah, man, dude, is this, this is not, I think you're evil, you're a terrible person. This, this is what I think. Give me some, if I'm wrong or something, send me some links. Send me, yeah. and you'll send me, like this one guy started sending me articles. I'm like, oh, well, thanks for sending me that. I may not agree with you 100%, but at least I have a broader right. idea of where you're coming from. And that it doesn't, even if you don't, you know, a lot of times, people argue to win. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, it's, which is, and people think I'm doing that a lot of times when mm -hmm. I'm talking, like, you're just so great. I'm like, no, I'm just, I have, I have an idea where I'm coming from, but I'm not trying to defeat you. I'm trying to understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And of course, if I'm arguing about something, then I believe that my train of thought is sound. Yeah. So I'm going to give you the evidence for that. And then you have to counter that you know, using the same tools, you know, mm -hmm. of logic. Okay, so where am I going wrong? Figure out, but a lot of people don't like to go down that. Well, I, and actually, I think that that is very valuable. I think that's one of the best things about Twitter is, and all social media, is that you can decide, I'm going to engage this person, and it's not about agreeing or disagreeing. I'm going to bridge the gap and have a discussion. I recommend, if you, if everybody can be that philosophically minded about it, I think that's phenomenal and, and honestly solves a lot of the problems that you're talking about. Because once people stop being threatened, they stop worrying about their survival as much. And the problem is, punch a Nazi is an extension of the threatened culture. I'm gonna threaten you with this, I'm gonna threaten you with that. Mm -hmm. And both sides, or, or however many sides there are, uh, that's what dominates the discussion. But this, exactly what you said, is why I don't believe it, Doc. Yeah, I don't, because I've engaged with people enough uh, to know that if you offer people personal empowerment and you give them permission to be an honest version of themselves and you also give them permission to kind of piggyback whatever aspect of yourself that they identify with, particularly if, if it's in an aspirational way, right? So like for you, you're a guitar player in a very successful band. <laughs> and so some people, anybody who likes guitar, or bands, uh, there's gonna be a large number of those people that are just simply going to look at you in an aspirational way and say, that guy did something I would have liked to have done or would like to do. And then that aspirational thing is now a, you know, a power or responsibility that you can accept upon your engagement with that person and use for positive means, right? So, and it's the same thing with drawing comics, right? A lot of people drew growing up and they see you draw something and it's, you know, professional and they automatically say, you must be different than me in a good way. Mm -hmm. 
which is a hit to their self-esteem, but I can use that to say, well, since you think I know what I'm talking about, just listen to me and I'm gonna give you permission to be more of what you would rather be than the part of you that you fear that you are. Because I don't believe that you fear that you are what you fear that you are. And I don't think you really believe it too, but you're so afraid of it that you're manifesting it. And all we have to do is put you in an environment where you don't have to do that. So let's not do that. And let's come along and have a good time. And so many people respond positively to that kind of energy. And doc, this started happening involuntarily. Mm. I didn't even realize I was doing it. And I, I just noticed people started friending me and following me and reaching out to me in DMs, like asking me personal questions. And I'm thinking, I didn't give any indication <laughs> that the door was open. But no, I like, I didn't. Well, it's a, I think it's a responsibility to anyone that um, that has any kind of success in a, in a field that is rare, that to, it's difficult to have success right. in, is to put the, you know, put the hand down. And, and that's what a big part of what this show is, is why I try and make the arcs of the conversations quasi educational. Yeah, for to sure. To a certain degree, trying to have industry people on to say, hey, these are the mistakes I made. This is what I think about it. These are the mistakes these people made. And they'll tell, tell you why and hopefully, and generally, even if it doesn't work out, you know, the, the general thing I get from people is, hey man, I listened to your show and I got inspired. You know, it came, you know, I was feeling bummed out and I listened to this episode and it got me pumped up to keep yeah. keep going because, you know, it's, you know, you take you take a lot of L's. Right, absolutely. And <laughs> this thing, and same thing with me. I would listen, I remember when I was maybe not doing music that much and I'd like, was trying to work or something, I'd listen to like Josta's show and I'd hear him talking to some guy and they're like talking about it. And I'm like, all right, you know, you get a little get your get your <laughs> cup refilled a, a, right, a little bit. Right. But uh real quick, um, you know, we've we've gotten so much into this kind of internet culture and a little bit of race stuff and stuff like that. But let's talk about your your career as a, as a, sure. as an artist. Uh how did you um A, you know, did you start doing art way back in the days that yeah. and you when did you start doing it professionally and how did this okay so thing... the exact the exact trajectory is uh i drew as a kid my one of the greatest things about my parents was they encouraged me to draw as a kid well they uh, so did me and my brother which i don't mean to make about me but i was you know and so did tommy actually oh that's yeah, awesome yeah he still is pretty what yeah. i should have brought the sketchbook up here we had a little jam <laughs> session man had a little fun um so, you know, my parents encouraged me to draw as a kid, uh, made me feel like, never, never made me feel like I couldn't do it. And so I did it, did it a lot, read comics. That's basically how I learned to read. And, uh, you know, and so I did that all through high school. And then at 16, 17 years old, I fe well, fell in love with metal and picked up a guitar off, basically off the street randomly, horrible guitar. And uh, I played every single day for a year to a year and a half, joined Locked in a Vacancy. Uh, played for two years, wrote about two albums worth of music with that band. Uh, and then I got a job in animation, web animation, because the web was exploding at this time, uh, around 99, 2000, this is about 2000 now. And um, I could not do both successfully. In fact, quite frankly, I was so garbage as an artist that I, I knew I had to work roughly 12 to 18 hours a day on, on getting better in addition to the work that I was doing, or I get kicked out. So I was like 19, 20 years old. I was one of the youngest people there. Sleep for like 15 minutes. Oh yeah, it was rough it, because it is very frustrating being bad at art, like very frustrating, uh, particularly when you don't. You're telling me, I got, I got, I quit doing art in college because I couldn't draw a line. <laughs> I had this mean teacher, this black dude, you know what I'm saying? He's like, you cannot draw a line. 
Our teachers are the worst. Man. You no, I think it was it was like that freshman class that yeah. they used to like weed people out. It then, I don't. Why would you do that? But and I'm not going to get into that. No, it was the best thing that happened to me. <laughs> you went to guitar. No, it 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 highlighted that I was didn't have the passion and that I I right. certain things like I said this is I, I've been talking about this recently about life sends you waves. Yeah. Right now you either go against the wave or go with the wave. Right. And guess what. I was better at guitar than I was. I was more talented as a guitar player as I was as an illustrator. That is an interesting thing to say, which I will touch on after I answer your question. So I uh, started an animation, web animation. Uh, I had to quit the band in order to have my success in art. I always, I'd never intended to be a guitar player. I was just doing it so much and around musicians that when John got his girlfriend pregnant, I was there to replace John as a guy that they knew, a guy that would be reliable, and a guy who could play the songs tight. And um, that was actually when I learned that for me, I don't necessarily believe in talent as people understand it. I think talent exists as an extremely rare phenomenon, but for most people, it's more about unlocking the part of you um, that communicates with whatever you're trying to do. Not physical talent, but just when it comes to the intellectual disciplines. And for music, it was almost proof because I was completely tone deaf when I started playing guitar. Even when I was with the band for like the first nine months i could not even tell if a note was higher or lower almost like i had some kind of condition i was so tone deaf i couldn't hear it. i couldn't play anything by ear at all and literally one day my brain shifted and i could do that so but unfortunately i'd leave the band i uh, went to animation did that for a while did some toy box art for like gi joe stuff like that and then from the gi joe stuff i got hired to do the gi joe comic and I've pretty much been doing Who put, was G.I. Joe Marvel as well? No, G.I. Joe was a company at the time called Devil's Do. Okay. Uh, and then I actually left comics for a little while. I, I went through the, uh, what seems to be a common thing is the mid to late 20s, like innermost cave finding yourself depression <laughs> of like, what am I doing? I suck at everything. I don't know what this is. Uh, I don't even know if I want to do anything. Do I even care? This world sucks. I suck. Um, I love. I love. They call it a midlife crisis, but it really. I think it, it that crisis thing happens to people at every. It's yeah. like twenty five. Yeah. Thirty. Thirty five. Like right. anytime you're looking at those. You gotta those, recalibrate. Yeah. You're like, what? What? Wait a second. I'm going to die someday. Right. And so during that recalibration process, uh, that was when I decided, you know, that life was basically about, you know, how you treat yourself how you treat others and how you allow yourself to be treated. And from then, uh, my social ability got much better because I knew, similar to Twitter, I'm like, when I talk to people, I'm not talking to them to feel good about myself, I'm talking to them to make them feel a little better today. And if I do that, I'm gonna always, not always, but usually have a positive experience socially. And that would change the condition that I always had, which was I hated small talk, I only wanted to talk about the deep things. You know what I mean? I only wanted to talk about the things I was super interested in and not too many people were interested in those things. So I didn't want to talk to too many people. And I'm like, well, that's not going to work. And so once I, I you know, I did some meditation, figured out those things. And I came out of that and I decided I'm going to move to the West Coast and work for one of these comic book companies. I went to a comic book show. I got hired by Top Cow, uh, DC and a company called Dynamite offered me a job. I took the job with Top Cow because that allowed me to work next to Mark Silvestri, who's one of my 80s heroes. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned a ton from Mark and yada, yada, yada. I'm at Marvel. So and how long have you been at Marvel now? Now it's officially been, I think, a year and a half, almost Okay, exactly. so that's pretty new. It, yeah. And you started with Luke Cage? 
Yeah, Luke Cage. Well, technically, I did the uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, cover. Then I did uh, a uh, New Year's thing for Charlemagne the God. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, no, I did see that. I think I did see yeah. that. So, and did you then, get to meet him? No, I didn't meet Charlemagne. That dude seems cool. I don't, I don't know. I, I honestly not really heard of him until they offered me the book. So I had to research him. I'd never seen the show. Oh, really? Uh, but it's entertaining. Like, you know, it's entertaining. He's, I, I don't I know. Read he, his book. I like the way he thinks. He's yeah. A, he's a cool dude. Uh, so, yeah. So then after that, I worked on Luke Cage. And uh, So that's a situation that like, uh, you black. Uh, we got uh, Luke Cage, man. He black. A hundred percent. Dude, a hundred percent. Are you serious? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. It definitely seems to often line up that they way. They come like, hey, blood, uh, we got this. Uh. Well, to be fair, though, because and, and, and I say this not as a knock against any company, but if you hire a non-black person to write a black character. They're going to get criticized. People online get upset. Yeah. And I find it ridiculous yeah. because when I was growing up, some of my favorite characters were white. Some of them were black. I would say I loved Bruce Lee War, Bruce Leroy, and Luke Skywalker equally. Yeah. You know. Now I acknowledge Last Dragon is not quite as good as Star Wars. I mean, that's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs> you, your Last Dragon, I'll go. I'll go down with the count with that, man. dude. All day, all yeah. day. So you know, but I like them both equally. And as a kid, I was just on the hero's journey. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about what they look like because I recognized the truth of it, which is, again, we don't believe you need more people. Spiritually, mythologically, we're all on the same basic path as yeah. human beings. We have more in common with other human beings than we do with any other person, place, or thing on the planet, right? So whatever creature you can co compare us to, whatever item or object or uh, elemental force you can compare us to, we are most like the same thing, which is human beings. And when you look at it from that perspective, uh, it's easy to understand why we shouldn't be hung up on these issues. Yeah. Um, you know, so. So, I mean, how is your, is this the, so so I'm so far removed from, from this world because this was my everything yeah. when I was 15 years old. I got, yeah. I actually got accepted to Joe Kubert school. I was thinking oh, about doing what? that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I was completely, that was everything. The way my mind works is when I'm into something, I go in a thousand percent. Same here, yeah. And then when I kind of shifted into music, I kind of went a thousand percent in that direction, even though I know that's mathematically impossible. <laughs> but um, but no, and so, but I imagined, or what I remember hearing artists say back then is just that, listen, you think, you know, just because I'm drawn for this company that it's all great. It's like, no, I work all day every day uh -huh. you know this consumes your life if you're not willing to work 15 hours a day and do this stuff so is it a situation where you feel like you've made it or is it just no i'm in the kind of best position if i want to continue to do this and has it like changed your life and I, I would say yes on both counts well the thing that honestly art is one of the most meritocratous uh fields you can get into because most people draw really bad because art, I mean, you know. Because it's hard. It's just a difficult thing to well, do. Well, the training is bad. Yeah. People do what they're trained to do. Really? Uh, so people are excellent at getting on Twitter and talking shit and making themselves miserable and depressed because there's a really good training to do that because everybody's doing it and they're teaching each other how to do it. We don't do that with art. So people are generally bad at art. Uh, art is pretty simple. And I find, I, I think I could teach pretty much anybody to be at least a near professional, if not a total professional. Really? Yeah, because our standard for art aren't, isn't Rembrandt. Our standard for art is the worst person drawing a comic right now. Can I teach you to be better than that person? I guarantee that, Doc. I guarantee that. <laughs> really? We, we could lock really? all your guitars in the shed. 
<laughs> sit next to me for a year and we'll I will get you a script on the 13th month and then get you ready to get paid. So, you know, um, you, that, so, so I don't, so the thing for me is once you are good enough to work professionally, you can kind of get work almost anywhere because there aren't that many people that can draw. And you don't just think about the ability, you think about the the job, right? Yeah, so being, a, being on time, being a, being coachable, and being able to- Coachable is the key, yeah. the specificity, right? So when we say how many people can play professional basketball on the planet, right? Even if you include the non-NBA leagues, still a thousand, a couple of thousand people. Couple, I mean, I'm sure a few thousand. A few, I mean, Could. just a few, Yeah. right? Um, so. And this is not including the sliding scale of people aging out of that ability, right? Like every year, there's well, a whole Well, bunch here's of where it works. Out. You have a few people age out and a couple people age in. Yeah, but these kids are terrible. I <laughs> <laughs> can't shoot, Doc. But, <laughs> I don't know. I saw Jason Tatum whooping everybody's oh, ass. He, he's ridiculous. He, so that's why he get the he get the big money. So, so you know, um, the thing about artwork is once you gain that ability, there's a certain personal freedom that you have because professional artwork will always get paid. Yeah. That I feel you haven't been replaced by robots just yet. No, it's that, again very difficult. It's very cerebral kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Is um, is it? Um, so you work with the writer. Yeah. Um, do you write as well, or I don't write professionally in comics right now, but yeah. I will likely shift over to that in the next two to three years. That's something you're interested in. And, yeah. And it. So no, I'm just I'm I'm a little fascinated in just the how much creative latitude you really do. I have. personally have a lot. Yeah. Uh, I've been well. Okay, so the way I got into Marvel. So do you do you storyboard before you actually? I used to, uh, but and for the so for the people who are trying to get into comics, the definition of comics is currently not accurate. The definition of comics is like sequential art or something stupid like that. That's not what it is. Comics is storytelling, visual storytelling, but with design. Yeah. And design with design is an extremely important part of that definition because the better you are as a designer, the better you are as a comic book, as a comic book artist. There's no comic book artist. So it just mean like aesthetic and layout, just the way it kind of... Well, design works the same way it does in music, Doc. It's the same thing in everything, right? Design is the arrangement of elements. Yeah. That's it. The arrangement of elements and non-elements. That's what your design is. Well, for some reason, I'm just... It, I, I conjure you know, cinematography and uh, symmetry and- well, let's think about an know, album, right? Or, you think about an album. So say you're right, say you have, you know, a bunch of heavy songs, a bunch of songs that are kind of heavy fast, a bunch of songs that are really catchy. So when you put the album together, you want people to have an experience that gives them enough space and room to get everything. You know, if you put all the fast songs in the beginning of the album, you're gonna lose some people. You put all of the heavy songs back to back in a row, then they're not gonna be as energetic about it. And when that third, fourth, fifth heavy song comes in, right? So what are you doing? You're adding space, non-elements, right? Certain songs have more space in them than other songs. And this determines the design of your album sonically. This is exactly how we do artwork. It's the same elements. Uh, in fact, um, Adam Neely, a great YouTube uh, music theory guy, j I just saw a seminar of his talking about how not only is art and, are art and music uh, similar, they are exactly the same. Rhythm and melody and color are literally all actually the same thing. Mm -hmm. And by speeding up rhythm, you get melody. As in literally, if I took a kick drum and I sped it up fast enough, it turned into a note. And depending on the spacing of that kick drum, it'll turn into a different note. 
So there's a specific polyrhythm that a major chord fits into. And when you listen to them both, you're like, they do kind of feel the same. And those things, when sped up even higher, literally become colors. And those colors are complementary colors. Mm -hmm. So when I say we're all doing the same stuff, when, you, when it comes to design, you already know how to design. What happens is the literal world brain is speaking the words, not the language, right? So you have to teach your brain to not think about the words, as Bruce Lee said, to look at all that heavenly glory, right? You have to, you know, again, shut up, listen, speak the abstract language of what you're doing, not the, uh, the lowest level language. And this is what we do in music all the time, is you have a super abstract message that if, uh, if, if somebody was super into music theory, they'd get it right away. They'd see what you were trying to do before you even finish the song, right? Because th they are just so aware of the possibilities. But then you have that person who's just getting into music and they need to hear the catchiest, most familiar thing with just that little tiny twist of what's unique to you guys. And that'll bring those people in. And that's the stuff, you know, that's kind of like the ladder of consciousness, if you will, about what you're getting into. This is the same thing about creating work. So when you ask what is design, the design is the division of space between silence and non-silence. Yeah. Or yeah. as Adam Jones said, the negative space. Right. Exactly. Negative and he positive space. He actually said space. that. Uh, he came to see God forbid play in LA. What? And he said, he's like, I like the way you guys use negative space. And he's totally right. <laughs> right? He's totally right. So that's what design is. And yeah. so what design is basically learning to use your space in comics uh, on the page. Uh, and you learn how to affect people emotionally by using that space. And you learn to draw. One more, one more question. Um, has the success of the the film world within Marvel and I guess comic books as a whole like uh -huh. it's it has that demonstratively affected the day-to-day -day of what goes on with with comics is it difficult to do that job without kind of looking at that as the end game for every project uh this is an inside baseball question and I'm going to give you uh an answer that hopefully makes sense it varies from project to project book to book so but it's instance, not but it's not a cultural shift within because it, I mean think about it 20 years ago it was rare you'd get a batman you'd get a yeah. and now essentially blockbusters have become I said this every every blockbuster is a superhero movie right yeah. John Wick is a superhero movie yeah, oh, for he sure, can't for be sure. killed right right <laughs> Fast and Furious is a superhero Total movie superhero, absolutely. like everything every action movie is basically a superhero movie yeah. now Okay, it's changed culturally in the sense that because the jobs overlap, it's probably easier for me as a comic book artist to go to a movie studio and be like, hire me to work on your film because now they respect what I'm doing. Yeah. And, there's, and the way it's changed as a creator is if you're a writer, uh, one of the best things you can do is just do your own comic. Yeah. Save up the money. But that's what I'm saying. Is it now the idea instead of saying, hey, I want to work for Marvel, is it, no, I want to produce my own graphic novel that will hopefully get bought and then... I'll become an executive producer. Both and then... things are true. So within the industry, working for Marvel or DC is the fastest way to get popular. You might get lucky and your book get popular. You mean as just like your individual brand, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like literally, so I'm drawing Spider-Man right now. There are hundreds of people this who are drawing Spider-Man. <laughs> Spider-Man. Spider is, it, is, it, is like Spider-Man like Mexican now or He's Honduran or some shit? Latino, half black. I'm like, what is this motherfucker? Like, like yours truly. Um, <laughs> but both Spider-Man are in the issue. Okay. Um, we got many Spider-Man. I don't know. What's, guys, I'm out of touch with the comics. My apologies. I'm going to send you one. You good. Okay. Sure. <laughs> we catch you up. So, so yeah. So, um, you know, so currently I'm, I'm drawing Spider-Man. 
And uh, there are people who are gonna follow me because I'm drawing Spider-Man. So there are people who are buying my book Romulus from Image because I'm drawing Spider-Man and the writer, Brian Edward Hill, is writing it and he's also writing Batman. And he wrote Romulus. So that helps, you know, your own stuff. And now if we go to do Romulus 2, it's most likely going to sell better than Romulus 1 because we did Batman and Spider-Man and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, no, that's... I Listen, I'm... Uh... I'm really blown away by all this, uh, you know, just to see people have success in yeah. different avenues in ways that you don't really, you know, like I said, once you're kind of on the outs of a subculture, yeah. it in a, in a sense becomes invisible to you, you uh -huh. know, if you're not seeing it. So it's, I don't know, it's just, it's just really interesting. Like I have like one of my friends is, uh, you know, he works for Major League Baseball. My other friend uh, oh, works for, you know, you, know, you see guys works for, you know, I've, I've, I worked for the NBA for a minute and you see people do yeah. that and it's just... To have these jobs that I think when we're when we're coming up that are the the, the dream jobs, yeah, right? It's absolutely. The, it's the ones where like I'm not punching a clock, I'm not doing something I theoretically hate. It's creative. It's um, you know, they're you know, just to be able to be passionate about your career, I think is and, rare. And that's to answer the other part of your question real quick. I always absolutely detested that idea that I would meet a comic book artist or writer and they talk about how miserable they were and how hard their job was. Because I'm like, dude. Did that happen? Yeah, there's a lot of guys who have that, I mean, gals who have that attitude in the industry. And I, I abhor it. I think this is one of the luckiest, you know, awesome, most awesome jobs in the world. I mean, I draw, you know, people in tight clothes, riding motorcycles, you know, swinging swords at each other and superheroes jumping off of buildings and stuff like that. So I find it absurd that there are some people who are unemployed or have a horrible job. Like for me, the worst thing in the world was to wake up every morning and sympathies to everybody, anybody who has to deal with this and look some boss in the face that you would love to snatch by the collar and throw out that window and have to say, sure thing, when they say something disrespectful to you and just move on. Like, I think that's such an evisceration of the human spirit. And I'm personally not built for it. I, I'm kind of a person who'd rather die and work for somebody that I You're like me. You you wish a motherfucker would. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it's just not how I'm built. You know? You uh, said what? What did you say? To me? <laughs> I so, wish you would. Like, I can't wait to. You ever one of those jobs? Like I bartend. You know, a lot when I'm when I'm at home, and you just get one day. You're like man, you just think you're like happy. Like, I think I should just leave. I shouldn't even quit. I should just I should just walk to my car. A hundred percent. And that frequency, people take that to Twitter. You know what I'm saying? And so when you work a job where you can, if you want to wake up in full joy, in full gratitude, do something totally creative that at the end of the day is most likely going to bring at least some people happiness. Yeah. That's your job. If you're a musician or you're an artist or you're a storyteller of any kind, you know, a personal trainer or something like that, your job is actually to make people happy. There's some people whose jobs are either just busy work or to make people more unhappy. I mean, if you can't be grateful for that, you need to look inside and fix that, you know, before talking to people about how hard it is to hit a deadline. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I kind of hover in both existences in a way where I feel really super lucky to yeah. be able to do things like stuff with the band or do stuff like the podcast or, or, or write, but I'm also the guy where, you know, it didn't I don't care what I'm doing, I gotta try and be the best at that for that sure. day for the personal pride and the that who that hey, you know what? Hey man, I got a job. 
Yeah. So, and guess what? When you broke and you need a job, you you should be thankful for that job. And I, I get I get it. Every job is not great and everything. No, you're right though. You know, but if you if you want it, if you're if you're in that position where you need to do what you got to do, all right, that day I'm doing my best and I'm not gonna feel bad about myself and I'm not gonna. But obviously, you're in a situation where someone's abusing you if they're yeah. being, you know, the because I always notice that it doesn't actually matter what you're doing as long as you feel respected. Yeah. As long as um. You know, you feel like you're 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 being valued, like mm-hmm. all that other kind of humanistic stuff, can actually inspire people to do jobs that normally you would think people would. A hundred percent, right? Like if I'm sweeping up the floor, but I'm like, hey, you know, everyone's nice to me, and and they're, hey, doc, can you do this? And they're respectful. I can pretty much do anything. It's just all that you know. But sometimes I think, um, you know, and I I notice this, you know, because I work, like I said, I've worked in every yeah. position in the venue. I've been the guy at the door taking IDs. I've been behind the bar. Uh-huh. I've done all. I've done production. I've you know I've been on the stage, and you see how people treat you differently. Absolutely. Oh my God, it's you know? crazy. That was honestly, Doc. That was one of the greatest gifts I got from Locked in a Vacancy, because I had so little guitar, if you want to call it talent, starting out. Um, I knew I wasn't a good player. So when we do really good good shows that people, you know how they come to you after the show, they want your pick or something like that. They're like kind of got this, they're looking at you the yeah. way you look at the guys that you really admire, right? Put you on a pedestal. They do, they put you on a pedestal. And I'm like, well, I know for a fact I don't belong on this pedestal. If this was happening at a comic book convention, I might get confused. I might think, yeah, I draw great. Of course you like this, I'm so tired. Does that stuff happen now though? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, people, you know. He's like, yeah, that's how it is. Man. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, sometimes it'd be like that, you know. You know, Spider-Man, motherfucker, you know, Spider-Man. <laughs> drawing is a lot cooler than you think. Like, it, it seems nerdy at a glance, but it, yeah. it you know, it, go, it gets pretty far. Other comic book artist groupies? I wouldn't, no, they aren't. He, he hesitates, he's like, nah, uh-uh. There's not comic book artist groupies, but if you can draw a picture of whoever you are interested in, it is most likely a very good icebreaker. It's going to work. It's going to work. Most likely a great icebreaker. As Napoleon Dynamite said, girls like skills. <laughs> they like skills. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> girls like skills. So, you know, uh, yeah. So so, so um, being in that situation of having somebody put me on a pedestal and having them treat me completely differently than a, almost like a human being, but still feel like, okay, I'm, especially in the hardcore scene at the time, you knew that kids were spending their only $10 to see like yeah. a heavy band and go nuts and sweat it out. Well, and- I, I, I talk about that. I don't know if I talked about it on here. Or I was just talking about it with my friend about now that I'm in a position with this band that it's growing, right? Yeah. And now they're especially we're on the headline tour, so the focus is on us yeah. and the people that are coming there, are, you know, for the most part are coming coming to see us. And it it was a, it's a shift. Yeah. It's something where yeah. I'm like having to kind of recalibrate right how I approach people, how I spend my day, where where I go, but I'm doing the best I can to to not let it get overboard so like if i have someone who's like fawning over me i'll do my best to disarm them right to say because i don't think it's you you put you hit the on the head when you said there's something dehumanizing yes about essentially turning a person into a symbol right so th- i think this is this is the idea of the beatles or elvis or michael mm-hmm. jackson where they were so famous and people treated them like they were gods yeah right this is almost like the idea that the world without religion we, we right. turn you get religious about that. Yeah, right. we turn other other people this idea of the rock god, right? Um, but essentially, those people, their fame was a prison. Yeah, right. And it turned 
normal people for for all they were concerned normal people was like the zombie apocalypse right, right. there's nothing appealing about being no you know torn down even though i think someone like michael jackson needed it that's like the him holding the baby out like he, right like oh he, yeah that was his like unfortunately he was getting like oh i need to get my hit of of attention and love that's because he, he was and some people are built like that well i mean he was withheld love as a as yeah. a child and that's yeah. you know that that was his way of you know the guy was a broken human being mm -hmm. unfortunately but thankfully i'm a 37 year old man who's been <laughs> able to have some sort of normal development and i've been treated a certain way right. for a long time so i've become acclimated and then i had to go backwards yeah well i wouldn't say ba backwards is the wrong is the wrong word i i had to i transitioned out of that lifestyle into being more blue collar like working at duff's right and i'm and right. all of a sudden people are coming up oh this guy was in this band and now he's serving me drinks and then after a while they just get used to it yeah and there's like oh yeah and it was i love that Right, that's like Dave Chappelle. He just lives in his little town in yeah. Ohio, and, and they they're like, treat "What you up, like Dave?" He's yeah, like, they, "What up, neighbor?" <laughs> exactly. You want people to treat you like a person, not the guy from that thing. And the thing is, Doc, for them, because if you make me something other than human, that means you have a warped view of your own humanity. Mm. As you said, I'm just a guy who's good at something that you're interested in, which is awesome. But here's the thing. I don't even think, I think there's guys, I can go right on Instagram or YouTube right now and find 50 dudes better than me. I don't even, to me, it's not about I'm really good. At, I just say there's one me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I do. I'm the best at being me. Right. I'm not saying I'm better than you at guitar. Or I'm better than you at songwriting or better than you at podcasting or anything. I'm just saying I'm the only Doc Coyle. Right, out there right so i'm the best at that i'm pretty good at being that yeah whatever that means and you're 100 right it's not about good because honestly it applies to anything in a situation where people can other you right other other yeah like they can make you different than themselves in a way that you guys have two different forms of humanity and yeah. it, because we have a celebrity culture you can apply it to anything like we said i mean you know some of our most popular celebrities are famous for not being able to do anything well no well that's the new trope it's right. almost Think about it, like the idea of the uh, Kim Kardashian, yeah. Donald Trump summit. Right. Two is, people who... <laughs> well, I mean, listen, I, I, I think I would hate to say like, you know, at least Donald Trump, he has a background in business yeah, and, yeah. and all that stuff and branding and, you know, the, the reality show. But, you know, Kim Kardashian, despite the fact that she was actually there doing something that was actually quite noble. Yeah, for sure. Um It 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 does center around this idea. Let's face it, this, she became famous for making a... Uh, at Sex home tape, yeah. porn porn tape right yeah, yeah. and she's hot she got a big butt <laughs> and so and so they, and they were able to take that and and this is and this is kind maybe i would say the start because i guess uh paris hilton was kind of before her in this you know this idea of frivolous um value right right so so the idea is if you can get attention yes doesn't matter what you have attention the attention itself is now quantifiable right and we can say well they, it is these, this amount of views and clicks and whatever are worth this. So it doesn't, that is the skill. Yeah. Which is, and, is valid. I'm not saying that's not valid. And the, and the thing going back to what you were saying is instead of, uh, you know, othering me in any kind of way or seeing me in any kind of certain way, um, let's us bond as actual normal people so that you can see that whatever your version of this, like you said, you're the only dot coil, uh, you know, this per random person that we're talking about is the only one of them. You go out and get yours, you know? Uh, meet me, have a good time, sharing this thing. We have a common interest that, you know, I'm at this point in it, you're at that point in it. We're gonna share that. I'm glad that what I did 
brought you some kind of joy or or feeds that interest in some kind of way we probably have some of the same heroes now go do your thing and give that to somebody else and then come back give it back to me you know what i'm saying you go out and draw a comic book and draw it real dope so that i could buy it and be like yeah i'm gonna look at this while i draw today and i don't feel like drawing these buildings in the background right (laughs) that's what that's the whole point of it you know and the thing is that has to start from a place of humility and because I was in Locked in the Big Scene, I knew I was trash as a guitar player. I was already humble because I, I I couldn't well, logically no, no, attribute right, it to but myself. The, all right, so the humility does not come from quote unquote being trash. Well, it did the, for me at the, the time. Hum- I was humility young. comes from having an accurate appraisal of where you're at. Yeah, like yeah. we talk about in, in basketballs, right? Irrational confidence guy. Right, right, right. Right. <laughs> so you could have had the same level of skill, but had irrational confidence yeah, yeah, that sure. maybe would have led you somewhere cool. Who knows, right? Yeah. Um. But the, but I think humility comes with enough intelligence to be able to give yourself an accurate appraisal of where you are at, at a particular thing. There's always a joke with people because I'm very self-deprecating about like getting older and putting on a couple of extra uh-huh. Like, you're not fat. I'm like, I don't literally mean I'm fat. Right. I'm just saying I know how much I weigh. <laughs> I'm I don't have I'm not saying I don't have body dysmorphia. I don't think I'm anything. Right. But it's just taking the piss on myself saying, oh man, the, bags under eyes um. get a little double chin or whatever and you're just you're just keeping it real with yourself yeah yeah absolutely and i think you're so humble no it's just trying to get to the trying to figure out what the and objective version or the the best version of, of objective because we can never is there something as, as obje- objective reality if you coming from a subjective standpoint you can never actually no we, there's no way to know we can never is. view it Absolutely. Unless it was like some brainalizer thing that's like, right. we will remove all subjectivity. I don't, you know, I don't know. And the thing is, we don't have to be objective if we accept and give ourselves permission to be ourselves. Oh, by the way, you can use brainalizer for any comic I, book. Oh, I got you. If you want to. <laughs> that's on the house. Now, here's the thing. If that's in Avengers 5, don't be mad. <laughs> I'm not going to be mad. If they use the brainalizer in Avengers 5, don't be upset. I always say ideas are cheap. Yeah. Uh, execution is hard so i every good idea i have i'll, I'll come up with more ideas bring elizer i the love house. that attitude on the house i can't stand people who are stingy about ideas oh no because I, I i come like i said one of my friends was like i need to like she literally will write down should i say yeah that is just throwaway stuff that you know that i don't even remember like i need a stenographer because yeah. i just bullshit and say funny stuff whatever and it's just Whatever, like my ideas. brother says that to me. Do you have this thing where sometimes they say something back to you, you have no recollection of saying? Oh that? no, yeah. I go. <laughs> I think I go when I'm hanging out and I'm just trying to be funny and like make jokes. I go into like flow state. And yeah, I, and I yeah. It's, and a, I, it's a weird thing. Next time we talk, we got to talk about that flow state because that's a very interesting. Well, it's, it's well. The, the funny thing is, I, I, you know, I can be funny sometimes. <laughs> and like, and I was like, you know, thinking about maybe doing some stand up or write, writing some stuff. But sometimes I think when I'm funniest is when I just I just right. go off on a tangent. Absolutely. Sometimes I'll do it on here, and it's it's kind of this difficult thing. That, like people who are professionals, right? So I'll listen to like Bill Burr's yeah podcast. Love Bill Burr, and he just can be funny for an hour. Oh, he's super skilled now. But he but it's it's you're just like something that I have to like find this like um, stream. Yeah. Right. Like oh, where's the, okay the streams over here, and then you get on a roll and you say something funny like oh that was that was pretty good, but it's not always it's not like at my fingertips. Well, maybe right? you just, can relate to it like this because uh, this is what I found, and everybody kind of gets better at stuff basically the same way. Is you do something, generally it's somewhere between not bad or horrible when you the first time you do it, and if it's not bad, people think you're a prodigy, but it's not actually good. Otherwise, you get paid immediately, which most people don't. Yeah. Almost no one. Um, so you do something. 
it's all right or terrible. You you want to be better, so you look at what you did, and if you're lucky enough, you put your ego aside, or you're able to put your ego aside, or someone helps you put your ego aside, and then you you do it again and you improve on it with new knowledge, and you keep doing that over and over. What Bill Burr does is what, for me, I got the most out of from actually metal. So there was a point in Locked in the Vacancy where I said, where my musical brain had kind of woken up and I wasn't just chugging anymore, right? I was like actually working on the instrument and we'd wrote one song and the breakdown part of the song, uh, people were going nuts for. And I, I, it clicked to me what made a good breakdown. And I was like, I think I get it. I think I can always write a good breakdown and not have it be like one of these generic yeah. breakdowns that you hear bands do when they just start, you know, zoom, zoom. like I could like actually write a good one, right? And so the next song we wrote, I did that specifically for that purpose. And to test your ability? Well, I mean, to make a good breakdown. Just, okay. But it was also a test of the yeah. theory. And, and when we went out and played the show, it was at CBGB's, the first time people heard this song. The first time. And you know, first time songs usually don't get as much of a reaction as songs people are really familiar with and they're waiting and anticipating. Yeah. When we hit that breakdown, CBGB's exploded. And it was because I had that feedback relationship with the audience on such a consistent basis that I was able to hear what they hear and speak to them in the way that it was working inside my head before. Mm -hmm. I think with Bill Burr and these comedians, that's what it is. That's why they all say yeah, it seems you got a bomb. It seems intuitive, but it truly is a lifetime yeah, of, of going out, yeah. sucking, bombing, having that one part where they didn't hate you, and growing that into one laugh, into two laughs, into a five-minute set, into a forty-five-minute yeah. set. If I don't know if you've seen it, but the Jerry Seinfeld documentary comedian. About not the new one, the old one. No, that's what I'm talking about. It's called Comedian. Comedian? Yeah, where it shows, so him, good. it shows him having to relearn. Yeah. And then it shows that other guy with Orny Adams or that guy's. I don't I don't know. They had that guy, that guy that kind of sucked. Yeah. That was going through like all this, this stuff. Yeah, that's a really good documentary. So great. And so, you know, that was the first time I saw that process. And yeah, it's just that. And so now he just speaks the language, man. Well, you know? but there's also a thing of building an act, which yeah. is one thing. Which is the next level. But then there's also the fundamentals of do you have because there's that thing of just some people are just funny yeah you know oh, like yeah. like dave attell right is just funny you know uh what, what's his name uh the guy was on the other guy was on uh kirby enthusiasm black dude um oh i'm smooth yeah jb smooth. smooth he's just funny right like he doesn't have but you ever like hang out with someone and they're just like oh you're, yeah okay and then they say, oh, what you, I'm a comedian. And then there's nothing about them right. that was funny. Happens all the time with comedic, com yeah. comedic writers. Yeah, because they're... Because they're storytellers. Or, or whatever, but they don't have... Sometimes it's it's a voice. Yeah. It's a way to tell a story. It's a it's a quirk. It's just some people have... A, like, even like Joe Rogan. Oh, yeah. Like, he's... In general conversation, he's not that funny. But then mm -hmm. you see him do his stand-up, and he's amazing. Right, right. You know? So it's 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 kind of fascinating where people have these different skill sets and how they leverage this and why this works. I don't know. I'm, I'm very well, it's what it, what it is to me, doc is there's the fundamental skill and then there's applying that skill to the design of storytelling. Uh, and you hear Chris Rock talk about it. He's very, very good at designing his story in his, com in his comedy, tying every joke to another joke and callbacks and echoes and all that stuff. And the skill of design in storytelling, is the combining the fundamental part with the larger element.
which is what it is is for some people and this is the difficulty structure shuts down the creative brain yeah and it's not intuitive anymore because the structure they don't see the abstract in the structure they only see the chains and you have to have such an intimate relationship with structure that it the illusion of structure vanishes while the design of structure remains. That's why Chappelle to me is the best. Yeah. Is because you can never tell when he's improvising or yeah, if it's a it's full ridiculous. bit. And I think it's that's ridiculous. and it's and I th- I think it's more prepared than you think. But yeah. he's so good at riffing off himself yes. that he'll he'll add a tangent or it's like or it's like no I'm just watching a genius that can yeah. just do it. He can just conjure the thing and you see it in musicians people who are really sick at improv and then their album's also brilliant and you're yeah. like what yeah. you you just you're, have this all the time you're watching Nuno Court play like just yeah play. yeah uh, Nuno's ridiculous that's what I'm saying it's just like I, I don't fuck you alright I'm leaving <laughs> right no I, I just get excited just people that well there's no um, barrier between the intuitive and the the execution right they can yeah. just oh yeah you know, those are those are the the few and I, I guess we can call it genius uh it's it, but it's not genius it's, it's a communication with the abstract yeah and, and i can tell you that because i just figured it out with artwork but, but, but what i'm saying is in stuff like that whether it's comedy or or music where it's this stuff is happening fast yeah so it's you know we can tell if it's successful right away Mm-hmm. right i can hear if you hit a wrong note i can if no one laughs then it right. didn't work like these stuff that it's it's that it's the success rate yeah that's so so blown away but you know what? i think i'm gonna wrap it up here i have to run unfortunately <laughs> yeah Yo, this <laughs> I'm, was I'm, fantastic man thanks for having me no problem any any time and, and where can people check you out at nelson blake two the number two on twitter at Nelson Blake II on Instagram and basically everything else. And what what books do you have coming out that people should check out? Uh, go pick up Romulus. That's the uh, trade paperback me and Brian did from Image. That's our own story. It's about you know a ninja sword fighting girl fighting the Illuminati. Um, and Spider Man Annual coming out, I believe in September, will be that and a bunch of unannounced projects, which I'll keep you guys aware of if you follow me. Right on, man. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much, man.
track entitled office politics and it's from locked in a vacancies 2001 album exit the futility ward and like we said they uh they opened the bad wolves show in new york city and this was without nelson performing but i thought it'd be cool to play them on the show because uh just go really really long way back with those guys and uh definitely shout out to them for for playing the show shout out to diami the homeboy been been around for forever and yeah i really enjoyed the the conversation with nelson hope you guys enjoyed it too and i always implore you know anytime there's a guest that might not be a quote unquote celebrity or a metal name or someone in in that scene that you that you don't perhaps know that well beforehand Trust me, I'm having them on for a good reason. So I really hope you guys listen to all those episodes because, you know, this one we were able to get into things uh, talking about race, talking about culture, talking about, uh, you know, just just the, you know, just really getting into things on a really deep level, uh, which Unfortunately, some some I would say unfortunately, but with some of the my more customary episodes, it's more about it's so much about the particular person and their career. Uh, sometimes we can't dig deep in the, in the same way I feel like we went on this episode. So that's really a lot of fun for me, and hopefully I can do more episodes like this in the future. But anyway, guys, I'm gonna let you go. I have to. Uh, what do I have to do? I, I gotta catch up on my TV shows. Um, I gotta get some food. I like food. I talk about food a lot because a lot of times I'll be doing this. I'll be, you know, I, I, I'll be thinking about snacks. Uh, so I'm gonna eat some food. I'm gonna have some water. I'm on a, by the way, I'm on the, 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 the LaCroix tip. So I don't know if y'all, y'all know about the LaCroix, as I'll call it LaCruxes. And these are these slightly flavored uh, club soda or sparkling water, whatever you wanna call it. I'm addicted to these things. And especially there's a new flavor called Key Lime. And you guys need to get on this because it's it's a game changer. All right, it is it's some crack. I'll I'll drink three or four of these in a row. There's no calories. It's too good to be true. So you know, just putting out that out in the universe. You know, maybe the Crocs can uh, uh, sponsor the show. Stockholm needs some money. All right, uh, 
you know, I'm paying for hotel rooms over here for this damn show. God damn it. Love putting little curse words at the end of my statements just to, you know, it's like, you know what? I need some money. Shit. You know, just to put it on the end. It just puts a nice little exclamation on it. So with that said, Mamba is out. God damn it. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.